Welcome to the Elements of Being podcast, where I dissect and explore the minds and habits of psychologists, filmmakers, writers, and industry icons. Essentially, we examine the mental and emotional narratives and processes that steer the social stream of consciousness. Truly, a chance to geek out over the psychology behind human behavior. Each episode is a glimpse into the trends and patterns of human behavior and the underlying influences that navigate us in different directions. Whether we primarily focus on nutrition or the unconscious, guests share insights, thought-provoking lessons, the nuances of creativity, and the elements of being us. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Dave Evans, the co-director of the Stanford Life Design Lab and a co-founder of Electronic Arts, one of the world's largest interactive entertainment companies. He also led the design of Apple's first mouse and laser printer and has a BS and MS in mechanical engineering from Stanford. Recently, Dave and his colleague Bill Burnett co-authored the number one New York Times bestseller, Designing Your New Work Life, and it served as the foundation of our conversation. It's a job-changing, outlook-changing, life-changing book that shows us how to transform our new, uncharted work lives and create a meaningful dream job. With new insights, um, making our way through disruption, large and small, personal or global, the book helps us navigate during these times of fear and anxiety about the unknown and through our post-COVID work lives and beyond. Specifically, we discuss their disruption design with a focus on curiosity, reframing, radical collaboration, awareness, bias to action, and storytelling. We also learn how to make possibilities available even when our lives have been disrupted, examine the tools to enjoy the moment, and begin to prototype our future. So with this being said, let's jump in. Thanks for sharing the table with me, Dave. Glad to be here, Michael. You and your colleague Bill Burnett have been on my radar for some time now, and your New York Times bestseller, Designing Your Life, certainly appeals to my mindset and it has undoubtedly been an invaluable tool for readers to rethink their frame on life. As people slowly return to professional normalcy in the back end of this pandemic, many have begun to question their jobs or their careers. It has led many to reflect on their life, and uh, personally for me, there has been quite a bit of introspection as well. Your latest book, Designing Your New Work Life, seems to be the empowering answer, and I look forward to dissecting ways some of our listeners can steer a new professional path with satisfaction today. And first, I'd like to dig into a bit of your professional life. You're an entrepreneur who led the design of Apple's first mouse and laser printing and co-founder of Electronic Arts and the Stanford Life Design Lab. How did you approach the design of your work life early in your career, and how has your philosophy evolved? Well, clumsily is the short answer. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the, that resume and those highlights sound really great, you know, oh, the Silicon Valley innovation, you know, veteran. But I got to what we're doing here. You know, some people would often say that, you know, you know God often shows up in your life, you know, disguised as your life. And that probably was true for me. You know, for many people, their vocation is ultimately walking out their response to their woundedness. You know, and that may be not untrue for me as well. I had a heck of a hard time figuring out what to do with the rest of my life. Came out of Stanford in the mid-70s with a master's in 
thermosciences and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering already set to go to solve the energy crisis by the application of advanced energy technology. Now, what was not in the brochure of my master's degree is, oh, by the way, we're going to wait about 35 or 40 years before we really care enough about the energy crisis to be willing to put up the sacrifice necessary to apply advanced technology. So I immediately went out and failed miserably (laughs) and spent years trying to figure out what the heck to do with myself. So the way I got to the process we've now articulated in Designing Your Life was, you know, Sort of, you know, like trying to learn Braille by using a hot waffle iron. I mean, you know, a lot of burned fingers by trying it the wrong way. And so the way I approached things pretty clumsily was, you know, think you know what you're doing and then not check it out very well, uh, then overcommit and try too hard, then fail miserably and then do that again. I did that about four or five times. <laughs> uh, we could detail that if you want to, but it's, it's not that interesting. And I, and I fell into high tech at Apple in an unusual way. But it was really after I got there and finally something was working, because at least I was working in an industry that existed and was even growing, which meant it was open to new ideas. I began to start finally figuring out how to go about designing my own life and work. And the most important thing along the way was I was really incredibly self-unaware. You know, we talk about the first step is empathy. And in career development, particularly, you, you got to be empathetic with two things, yourself and the domain of the world you're trying to engage through a career, whether that's a job, you know, whether you're in you know, government or the military or religion or the marketplace or technology or medicine or the nonprofit world or education. Those are all domains of human activity, and they're very different. And I've been in a number of them. But really understanding who am I and who are they and where are we going? And I didn't understand any of those three things, and I kept trying anyway. So I'm now much better at the empathy step, and that's helped a lot. Yeah, I would think that someone like yourself, you just have a, a natural curiosity to to design and redesign and to put everything on the table, including yourself. I imagine for a lot of people, that's very difficult emotionally. So why do you think in some of these situations, you still, even after failure, push through to continue to find the right piece that fit in your life at that time? Well, you're right. I, I, I apparently fell out of the womb pretty interested, you know, and we, I'll often use the line that interested is interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty easily interested, meaning my curiosity is pretty easily activated. And that has turned out to be a great advantage. Probably some of the hardest people to help are the people who are neither interested nor curious. And we have somebody who's trying to help those people get unstuck. But curiosity is a, is a power tool for sure. And that has allowed me to be interested enough, even when I was incompetent. I mean, literally, when I got offered a job many, many years ago uh, at Apple, you know, which is six weeks before the company went public. This is, you know, back in 1979. Steve Jobs literally says, look, you don't really understand, bad word, anything about what we do here, but we think you might be an Apple kind of guy, so let's give this thing a try. I mean, they knew that I was incompetent, you know, but we'd had 14 meetings at their <laughs> behest. They called me. I hung up on them. They called me again. I hung up again. They called. I said, okay, fine. I'll come to lunch. And 14 interviews later, they finally said, well, yeah, you really don't understand anything about what we do. You're completely incompetent. You know, maybe, but maybe it could work out. So that curiosity kept me coming back. And that conversation got to the place where somebody was willing to take a risk. And so I've been willing to take a risk most of my life, not jumping off cliffs kind of risks, but you know, gosh, other smart people have figured out what to do over there. Let's go try that thing. 
And by the way, in terms of moving into a field where you're not really prepared, you know, I'll, I teach sometimes at the Stanford Business School, and I'll stand in front of the, you know, 400 some odd brand new, freshly minted number one business school in the country, you know, uh, inbound first year students, and say, how many of you are really hoping that what you're working on 10 years from now, we can't even talk about today because it doesn't exist yet? And three-fourths of the room immediately jump up and raise their hand. Oh, that's right where I want to be. You go, great. How are you going to prepare for that? <laughs> and for where you want to be, it doesn't really, I mean, so I mean, I'm here to prepare for the thing I don't even know what it is. So all kinds of people go through that transition into careers that didn't exist before and leave careers that have ended because they're not done anymore. Uh, I, used, I took drafting in high school and college. No, there are no draftsmen anymore. There's no, no, no drafting tables. Nobody has rapidograph pens anymore. That's over. <laughs> the fact that you don't know how to do something, or you might have to do something new, that's kind of built in if you live long enough. So don't let that get in your way. Well, let's talk about taking the first step. Our focus today, obviously, is a new work life. And part of the reason why I had reached out to you is just because of the conversations, the dialogue around me. And the pandemic has undoubtedly challenged our lens of ourselves and the world, and perhaps has proven that, it, that one is more resilient than ever before, or the opposite. And you've mentioned in the book that disruption is the new normal, which is very scary for many professionals who prefer their predictability of the career, although they may not always feel satisfied. How do we redesign our professional lives with unknown disruptions in mind when we've already invested in a specific path? And for some, it, it may really feel like they're taking a risk with change. Well, it feels like a risk because it is. Um, you're not crazy <laughs> and you're not alone. The, so we define a disruption, right? I mean, so we, the second edition of the book now called Designing Your New Work Life, you know, which came out in the fall, actually Penguin asked us to write about what do people after the pandemic need that they didn't understand before. So we conceived this idea of disruption design at wrote four new chapters all about it. And we define a disruption as any change, personal, regional, or global, after which you find yourself saying, gosh, things are never going to be the same again. So if you're going through one of those things are never going to be the same again moments, you're in a disruption. Now, in terms of how do I, how do I prepare for a disruption. Well, you know, if it's a, it's a bona fide disruption, many of them are unpredictable. And you're not responsible for knowing the future. I, I'm not here to tell people what you really want to be good at. If you want to be an effective designer in the, in the new world is you need to know how to know the future. You know, that you need to be a foretelling person. That's not it. Uh, let me give you a, a very personal example. So as I said here today, it's 13 months, actually 13 months and two weeks since my wife died. My beloved wife, Claudia, beat cancer the first time, lost the battle the second time. So she was diagnosed on the 2nd of March, 2020, one uh, week before shelter in place started and with a di terminal diagnosis, and we lost her nine months later in December. Now, while I was going through that, boy, I'm, I only got a little while. I'm going to lose my wife. I need to allocate that time carefully. So I met with other people who'd been through that. You know, the death rate is still 100%, so we have a lot of experience. I'm happy to learn from other people. I don't need to invent it from scratch. And a dear friend, Mark, who had gone through all that well and years before, gave me the following counsel. He said, my wife was a counselor, and she was a counselor with a specialty in grief therapy. And we had a nine-year cancer battle. I had a long off-ramp. I had 
tons of preparation. We were super competent. If anybody could handle losing their wife, it was me. And he said, here's my counsel. Don't waste a minute trying to prepare. Trust me, you're going to be devastated. It's going to be incredibly hard. I could barely button my shirt for three months. So here's the thing. Don't waste any time trying to prepare for what you can't possibly anticipate. Throw all your energy into loving your wife while you can. you got plenty of time to be a widow. I'd already been leaning that direction. I said, Mark, thanks for the authorization. That's exactly what I'm going to do. It's exactly what I did do. And it is exactly true. Now, in the last year, I put a lot of energy into dealing with and growing through the lessons of loss and moving on as a guy that's no longer married to Claudia. Now, that's a pretty severe disruption. And when we didn't see coming, we had a little bit of a runtime on it. But most disruptions, you either have no warning or not much. And the way it's going to be after the disruption, you really can't prepare for it. So that's where the most important thing to do to live in a disruption-rich world is, number one, simply recognize that it's true. Simply recognize that the thing you're depending on is not your forecast ability to be smarter than everybody else and see it coming, but your confidence is in, I have a methodology, you know, a, a wayfinding methodology. I know how to figure things out when I don't know what's going on. I know how to get lost and get found again. I've got a capability. We say in the Life Design Lab that our goal is to help people become empowered through the acquisition of a conscious competency in life and vocational wayfinding. It's a snazzy way of saying we help people learn the improv performance tools of living life. Life is a story we make up as we go along. It is improv. We're all winging it, but you can learn how to wing it better. That's all we're doing. So disruptions are a situation where you absolutely don't know what's coming and you're absolutely going to have to make a big change. So in, in the, the first chapter about disruption design, the first thing we talk about is acceptance and the importance of accepting reality because that's the power pivot moment. Uh, and there are three different ways to do acceptance, two of which don't work very well, one of which does. But I'll stop here. That's kind of a long answer. So disruptions, the most important thing to recognize is you can't be ready for their outcomes. You can only be ready for their process. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about your wife and certainly whether it's that or any change in routine or the figures in our life, it could require an extensive grieving process that one must go through. And it, it could affect all tenets of life. Uh, but what you hope is that from such disruptions, we become more adaptive and more resilient. The other words that you brought up uh, that always tend to resonate with me, awareness, acceptance, and it's a big part of my book and what I've written about. But that seems to be the foundation for any change, having that awareness and then, of course, accepting a current state, and then from there, possibly adapting uh, if you're prepared to take that step. But definitely appreciate uh, sharing a, of your personal life and helping illustrate you know, some of the different challenges that all of us face and how we might need to adapt our life uh, in response. Yeah, and the acceptance thing is absolutely huge. You know, the, the, the classical five steps of the design thinking process that we've been teaching at Stanford for a long time now. Uh, design thinking, you know, is the, the formal moniker of what's called HCD, human-centered design, originally conceived at Stanford back in 1963, been around for a while. And there's five steps, and those five steps are you know, empathy, definition, ideation, prototyping, and test. 
But step zero, which Bill and I constantly remind people of, it's true in product design, which is what that was invented for. Now we've moved it on to you know, economic system design and education design and life design. You can design your own life. Yes, that's what we kind of brought to the table in these last handful of years. But acceptance, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have, is a prerequisite to design working because design only works in this place called reality. It doesn't work in, in should land. It doesn't work in fantasy land. It doesn't work in magical thinking land. It doesn't work in wishing land. It only works in reality land because it's an embodied behavioral thing. It's not just sitting around thinking about stuff. We don't think up our solution. We build our solution in the world with other people in real time. So we're realists. You know, designers are fundamentally realists. They're optimistic and they're forward moving, but they have to work in reality. So acceptance is crucial. And in a disruption, you know, the three steps, you're going from the old world to a new world. Because again, if things are never going to be the same again, we're entering a new world. There's no going back. And so you go through this transition in between, that transition in between we call the acceptance zone. And the three kinds of acceptance, you know, there's repressive obsess- acceptance. There's suppressive acceptance and, you know, and there's generative acceptance. And repressive is I'm the victim or they're doing it to me. Oh, God, here we go. And I'm being crushed, you know, and that's disempowering and, and doesn't work very well. I'm, oh, here, here they come again. And then there's the suppressive acceptance, which is I got it. That's this, the, the hero. Don't worry. I'm, I'm in control, you know, which is stiffening everything up. And, and it feels kind of heroic. And both men and women do this. Um, the only problem is it's still in denial. And eventually the disruption is bigger than you are and it's going to crush. So what you've done is you've just delayed the transition to later and worse. And generative acceptance is like, wow, okay, here, here it comes. And now how do I both receive the reality of what's coming our way and lean into it with an open-mindedness, maybe even a curiosity in order to start becoming a member of the new world. And so in the acceptance zone, if you're doing it generatively, and by the way, it does often involve grief. Almost all disruptive changes mean something was lost. Uh, David Kessler, the collaborator and colleague of Kubler-Ross, who, you know, the most famous researcher on grief process, added the sixth step of meaning-making. And when interviewed recently, David Kessler was saying about the country's experience of the pandemic, that one of the struggles is we are a grief illiterate society. We're terrible at this. You know, so getting over stuff by getting through it, not just holding your breath, is a real skill. So we could get off on that as a side trip, but I'm not sure that's where I want to go. But nonetheless, you got to go through the grief process. You got to accept it. Uh, and then because the new world hasn't arrived yet, the disruption is, has um, upset things. But where they're going to be and how is it going to land? And are we going back to the office or not? Is it one day a week or three days a week or all five days? Or are we just going to sell the building and everybody stay? I mean, <laughs> what's going on? Nobody actually knows. Either the executives don't know. We called them and asked. They don't know. So you, you can't clearly plan for an unknown. What that means is now is the time to be curious and start leaning into understanding, running prototypes, finding more out about asking interesting questions about the world we're entering, which doesn't mean you know the answer yet, but when things get clear enough that you can start making a move, you're actually going to be on the front wave of the people most adapted to the new world. Okay, I just want to interject for a second because we continue to mention a word, curiosity, which I have always felt is an important aspect uh, for any type of change or just a way of life and to experience the best of life and appealing to that or natural curiosity. But there, there's some question of whether or not 
you could foster that curiosity in someone. And I wonder, it, someone in this process of change in their workplace and this reflection of their professional career, what if they are someone that's never pulled from this curiosity within or just don't feel that they are curious? If you watch babies and you watch children, humans are curious. It's an evolutionary advantage. You want to know what's going on around you. And so we have snubbed some curiosities. Uh, certainly some people have a natural proclivity to more than others. There's a range. But, you know, a fundamentally healthy person is not born devoid of curiosity. And some would say, you know, and after 12 years of a typical schooling system, certainly here in the West, we'll try our best to beat it out of you. <laughs> so some people, you know, have not been rewarded for being curious. There are systems people operate in where compliance and paint within the lines and, you know, don't push them at all seems to be the way to go. So curiosity has been disincentivized. But nonetheless, one way or another, somebody's arrived at not being all that curious. Now, what is curiosity? Well, I define curiosity as leaning into the pursuit of latent wonderfulness. Leaning into the pursuit of latent wonderfulness. Now, latent wonderfulness is the mindset of a perennially curious person because they're kind of going, well, hey, what's going on over there? Like, wow, I don't know, but I bet it's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, look at all those people in that building. There's got to be something going on. And, and what's, what's the most interesting thing that I could go be curious about? So you start with a presupposition that there is something fascinating going on here. I need to find the people who like it here, and they're the ones who know. And let me go find out what their story is. And rarely is that pursuit with that presupposition disappointed. Now, if you start with, oh my God, it's an insurance company. I mean, what could, you know, it's, it's so boring. I can't, I don't even want to walk through the door. Well, if you start with that mindset, tr trust me, you will prove yourself right. I used to do a little exercise with, with you know, my students at Stanford. I'd go, hey, how many of you are thinking about working for, like, man, you know, the insurance industry is huge and it's actually really, really growing. Um, how many of you really can't wait to possibly join the insurance industry? And then exactly zero hands go up. And then we talk a little, hey, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm aware there, there's this project, there's this startup group that's working on how can technology empower at-home caregivers, you know, who are not professionals, family members and friends for people who are shut in, particularly the elderly, you know, and this technology wants to actually empower them to be more effective caregivers, overcome loneliness, and move people out of hospitals and into their home for greater wellness and increasing hospital capacity. That's a really cool thing to do with technology. Who thinks that might be a fun project to work on? You know, half the room raises their hand and go, great. Guess what? A friend of mine is leading that team at AIG Insurance, one of the largest insurance companies in the world. Because none of you actually know what the hell an insurance company is. <laughs> so <laughs> most uncurious people, the thing they know that's not interesting, they don't even know that. So it's a mindset. So the thing one is you've got to overcome that mindset and give yourself a chance. Uh, the metaphor I sometimes use is bugs under a rock. I mean, you go into anybody's garden and you're walking around and there's a rock. What's so cool about that rock? Well, I'll tell you what, pick that rock up and what are you going to find? A whole bunch of bugs crawling around underneath that rock. What do those bugs know that's cool about that rock that you don't know? And under virtually every rock in the world, particularly professional rocks out there in the work world, there's a bunch of bugs under there that know what's cool about this place. You got to go find those people. So thing one about curiosity is what is the stance of a curious person? It's pursuit of latent wonderfulness. There's wonderfulness in there somewhere. It's my job to go find it. And if you assume that and you persist in that for a while, your chance of succeeding goes incredibly far up. This is where interested 
is interesting. You know, if you walk up to AIG Insurance and go, wow, you're a great, big, huge, you know, long-standing, monolithic insurance institution. You were saved by the government after the last economic crash. I bet you guys are rethinking what you do everywhere because you damn near died and now you've got a second chance at life. How's it going in there? Then they're going to go, well, as a matter of fact, here's what we're working on. You know, if you say, hey, AIG, you're a great big monster company. You probably deserve to die back in 2008. I'm not even sure why they saved you. You know, is there anything in there you want to talk about that I could possibly care about? They will go, no, why don't you go home? <laughs> so most, most uncurious people keep fulfilling their promises. And the reason I'm zooming in on just that initial mindset is without it, you're doomed. And then now for the uncurious person who has no experience doing this, who say, look, uh, my other metaphor is every pile has a top and every pile has a bottom, even if it's a short pile. You know, I mean, not most people would take a skiing trip to Kansas, but trust me, there is the best ski hill in Kansas. It's not very tall compared to the ones in Colorado <laughs> or California, but it's still the best one around here. So, hey, uncurious person, you know, whose mountain ranges look kind of like Kansas, just tell me what's the most interesting thing to you. What are a couple things you find interesting at all? You know, you're still collecting Beanie Babies or you're you know, interested in conspiracy theory. What? I mean, there's got to be something. Now we're going to use that thing, and there's not never nothing, as a way to start practicing how to lean into following your curiosity down the path. Well, incredible advice, and I wanted to sidestep for a moment. While I was thinking about this topic, I was also reminded how so many people, including myself, have modeled our professional approaches based on our parents and past generations, what we saw growing up. And commonly, the theme has been working nonstop and doing whatever it takes, often at the cost of our own personal health and lives. How do you think we could break this approach that has been fostered over a lifetime? Well, you know, that may be one of the, one of the great dividends of the pandemic. I mean, as awful as it is, and certainly anytime we're talking about losing worldwide millions of lives and nationally hundreds of thousands of lives, it is a bona fide tragedy. Now, that being said, in the face of all, is there anything in here that we can mine out of it as an asset? And the answer is yeah. There's the thesis we have in the new material in the book called The Human in the Room. The one thing that happened with hybrid work, people showing up on Zoom, is, you know, we're sitting there talking to you in your living room while you're ironing, while you're nursing your infant. <laughs> and that's a much more human scenario than you're wearing your suit in your cubicle. And so people increasingly moved where the ratio between my role and my person, I mean, in the workplace, I am my raw systems analyst here at Goldman Sachs. I, I look at the medical industry. I push these reports out the door. That's who I am. I'm the you know, medical industry systems analyst reporter in the following division, currently played by a guy named you know, Alistair McGillicott. You know, and I'm not really Alistair. I'm just the systems analyst played by Alistair. Well, in the hybrid work environment, we, you know, the systems analyst ratio of what you were experiencing as a worker, as your identity, you know, starts being a little less and your, the fullness of your Alistairness starts rising a little bit. There's more humanity going on. There's more autonomy. Uh, you know, your boss can't watch you all day long through Zoom. You've got more agency. You know, accountability, you know, rather than supervision is the mechanism for management. So things are changing that allow people to become more human. And that starts moving us down the pathway a little bit. So that's an outside in. That's a systemic change that could disrupt that default training you may have got where, you know, mom and dad just said, well, you know, 
You do your work first and you do your play later. And if that takes 25 years before you earn the right to start asking the question, what do I want? Well, then you put in your time, son. (laughs) In fact, I just gave a big presentation on this in New York to two rooms full of chief human resource officers and chief organizational learning development and training officers, LDT officers, who run big companies. These are, you know, Coca-Cola and BASF and the Salvation Army and large organizations, about 170 of them. And, and I said, guys, look, here's the message that's coming back from the big quit. What's the big quit about? People keep saying, golly, I mean, what changed during the pandemic? What new problem has arisen that's causing all these 20 million people to quit their jobs in the last couple of months and still going? And the answer we have is, no, 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 there is no new problem. The pandemic did not bring a new problem that is causing these quits. It brought a new intolerance for an old problem. And that old problem is, my work doesn't matter to me. It doesn't mean anything. And I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. In the last 18 months, I was scared of dying. I had a friend or a friend of a friend or a friend of a family member who did die. Life is too short. I am not putting up with this any longer. So one of the changes that allow people to break out of the old way of being is a force that's stronger than that habit says, you know, that's not working for you. And right now, everybody's got an invitation to rethink that because like, you know, if I had died during the pandemic last year, would that have been okay? Could I say I have no regrets? My wife died at seven. We held the news of her terminal cancer for a week. At the end of that, we announced this is sad, not tragic, because I have lived in such a way that I have no regrets. Now, that's a good thing to be able to say. So what you want to do after something like the pandemic is say, you know, if I had died during the pandemic, I would have been full of regret. Well, let's start fixing that and let's start fixing that right now. What you're just mentioning right now seems to be a dilemma that many people are challenged by, which is, do I want to serve a life of purpose, perhaps for less pay, or settle for a higher wage at a less satisfying job? How do you think one can approach this challenge? Yes, the money versus meaning dilemma. It is a classic. It comes up all the time. It's such a big deal. There's a whole chunk in the new book specifically about it. Now, it is a dichotomy in either or, and most dichotomies Bill and I would argue, are false dichotomies, because usually the reality that they're representing is more complex than just two things. Particularly, they're a false dichotomy when they're positioned as a zero-sum game, which your brain will naturally do every time it's offered something as an either-or. Money goes up, meaning goes down. Meaning goes up, money goes down. There are a whole bunch of these kinds of examples. And your brain loves to do it that way. And suddenly you've got an accidental teeter-totter in your head and you're feeling like, I don't like my choices. So the first thing we would do is say, look, it's probably not that simple. Let's make it a little more interesting. And let's overcome, you know, being ground into that problem that smallly. Now, first of all, are there mind-numbing jobs that feel meaningless in the world? Yes, there are. Can we, you know, if all your, your, you are, you know, a grocery bagger in a supermarket, the food comes off the conveyor belt, you put it in a bag, you hand it to the person, you're done. That's what you should do eight hours a day. Can you fundamentally make that fascinatingly mentally stimulating? Maybe, maybe not, probably maybe not for most people. Now, can you recover any sense of humanity in that job? Well, very possibly through what we call reframing and reenlistment. But let's first of all just start with 
yeah, there are some situations that are pretty soul-crushing, and you may want to get out of those. We certainly know people who have made the the decision, this thing over here is more life-giving to me and the world, or both, and it is a little less income-capable, and that's a a trade-off worth making. So there are a bunch of people making that trade-off, including people who are adjusting their lifestyle to be able to live on a great deal less money. Bill and I have talked to a couple who were, you know, both high-flying New Yorkers working in the information industry, working their butts off, making plenty of money, living in a snazzy place in, in the Upper West of Manhattan, and looking at each other, kind of going like, "Why are we doing this?" You know, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was engaging. <laughs> it was fun. You know, it's, you know, it was smart work. It was clever. It was demanding. All that felt kind of life-giving, and it wasn't horrible, hateful stuff. You know, they weren't selling people into slavery. They were doing legitimate work, but just. Their lifestyle was so monolithically work, 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 work. What's the point? And they prototyped and they played around with it. And they found that it was more doable than they realized to make a radical shift. They now work remotely as independent contractors in a little cabin in the hills of Colorado and live on about a third of what they used to. And they're doing just fine. Now, that's a big shift. But guess what? You know, one of the key lessons in life is it's actually up to you. I mean, most of the time, unless you're completely oppressed and have no resources at all, and some people are in that situation, and we're not trying to belittle that, but if you've got some resources and you've got some capability and you've got some choices, you have alternatives. We talk to people who are stuck all the time because I hate being a lawyer and, you know, I make a half a million a year and I can't, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, because, you know, baby needs new shoes. And Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You built this prison, dude. You don't have to live that way. You know, you don't have to have a brand new Lexus lease every six months, you know, come on. So people often claim to be stuck in things they're really not stuck in. And so I think relative to, to those kinds of moves, the meaning versus money thing, first of all, you probably have more choice than you think. And it isn't just two things. So very briefly, I'll mention, we um, have a thing we call the maker mix. In the book, we talk about, well, hey, people often say, hey, what do you make? Oh, well, money or meaning, am I willing to make less? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's expand the question. What do you make? And we say in the marketplace economy, you make money. In the social economy, you make impact. And in the creative economy, you make expression. So actually conceive what looks like a mixer board, you know, like a sound mixing board in a sound studio. You know, you want to turn up and down the treble and the bass or what have you. You know, you want to get the sound right of the voice of the song. You want to get the voice of your career in its totality, not necessarily just at the day job for which you're being paid. So we help people think about what money are you making, what impact are you making, and what creativity are you expressing, including both on the job and elsewhere, because that's all part of your output. You're dialing in your output mix, and maybe you want to change the mix of your balance to sound better. And there are ways making small changes in impact, for instance, that maybe don't mean a whole new job, Maybe a little on-the-job impact change and a little off-the-job impact change. Small time changes, small outcome changes can sometimes reap huge psychic benefits. Um, So there's some pretty non-linear correlations here. You know, one hour a week of more impact one-on-one with people who need help suddenly feels like a whole new job. You know, and that 38 hours I spent doing financial analysis feels different. So there are lots of ways to, to beat the money versus meaning problem. And we mostly want people not to feel stuck with just, I've only got two choices, you know, be poor and meaningful or be rich and be a jerk. That's way too small a way to frame the question. 
There are a number of concepts that we definitely need to dissect. And before we do that, I did want to really break down the overarching theme here, which is design thinking. And it's probably most appropriate right now just to perhaps define that. And then we could kind of strain that out. Is this is something that has great appeal to me? And I feel very empowered knowing that I could design you know, my approach to life, basically create the life I want by design. And so I was hoping that you could take just a moment maybe to uh, define that a little more clearer than we could go from there. Well, first of all, we're not promising you can design the life, the life you want. Like I want the following. Here's how to design it. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a five foot two, 75 year old person who can't jump. I want to play in the NBA. That's the life I want. No, you can't. No, I can't help you design that. Don't tell Spud Webb that. Well, he's not 75. He can't jump. (laughs) There are things you can't do or are so hard to do. It may not be worth trying. And we're not trying to say we can, we have magic. We can help you in reality, get to things that are available. And a lot more things might be available than you knew before, but that has to do with what's available. For instance, when we deal with people who are in oppressed situation, under-resourced people, if they weren't under-resourced, if, if income inequality were not hitting them, would they have more opportunity? Could they design something better? Absolutely. We're not saying that. We're saying those problems ought to be addressed. Meanwhile, while we're still operating in a broken world, can you throw some design thinking tools at that person and even right where they are today while still experiencing income inequality or income unfairness? You know, Still, for the exact same work, a woman is paid less than a man in this country. Okay. So while that's still going on, that I probably can't get fixed by this afternoon, can you still design yourself to a better place? Yes, you can. So we're trying to help people get to better. We'll try to get them to where they deserve to be, you know, but that's a moral issue that I don't have full power over. So that's the introductory caveat to what is design thinking. So design thinking, i.e. human-centered design, is simply a methodology for innovating solutions to problems, particularly wicked problems, which are nasty ones where you don't know what you're looking for until you find it, and you can't analyze the solution because there's no data on it because it lives in this place called the future we've never been to before. And usually it's so custom and unique to the parties involved that it's not replicatable. You can't take that solution and pick it up and drop it on somebody else and it works just fine. So design thinking has those capabilities. Easiest way to understand what design thinking is is to contrast it with other kinds of thinking. There's lots of ways to think. So we talk about there's engineering thinking. And in engineering thinking, we work on tame problems that are well-bounded, for which we have all the equations, and so we can solve our way forward. You can actually get the right answer. You know, tell me how much weight you want this bridge to bear and how long you want it to last and what the weather's like and whether or not it's likely to rust in this, you know, weather, and I can build you a bridge and it works every time. That's engineering thinking. Great stuff for a certain class of problems. We have business thinking, you know, where, again, you're never right and you're never done in business. You can always be better. You know, your customer never loves you enough. Your profitability is never secure enough. Your supply chain is never ecological enough. But you can get better. And you can get better in very organized ways. You can get better in organized, quantified, numerical ways. You can get an MBA and a PhD in how to do all that stuff. And we call that optimization thinking. So you optimize your way forward in the business world. It's a way of thinking. In the research world, like we have at Stanford, you know, you analyze your way forward. There are ways to analyze things and come up with new knowledge. And these are all very effective methodologies. But for these wicked, nasty human problems where you don't know what you're looking for until you find it and you can't replicate it, the only way to get there 
is to build your way forward. So design thinking is a bottom-up, innovation-centered, empirical process, hands-on empirical process that centers on ideation and prototype iteration. When we are trying to solve a problem we don't even really understand, then we have to become empathetic to it by understanding it and the user deeply. And then we start having some ideas. And those ideas are to learn our way forward, not to you know, guess the answer and be wrong a bunch of times. We're not trying to be right. We're trying to learn our way forward. And we learn our way forward through prototype. I'm going to go try a little experiment. I'm going to go expose myself with some other people. We're going to try this thing. What do we learn? Do it again. What do we learn? Do it again. Repeat that process until now we think we understand it well enough. We can actually design a solution that might work and stick. So design thinking is that process of moving through those steps of curiosity, moving to ideation, moving to prototyping, and then finally moving to an outcome. And you've mentioned prototype a, a couple of times. So right now, I think it's appropriate to discuss how to actually build that into your current approach while serving a current position. Because I think for some people, they already feel overwhelmed by a structure that allows very little flexibility to experience anything outside of their norm or current routine. Sure. And most of the prototyping we're going to encourage people to do, they don't need to work into their job description and they don't need to get permission from their boss to do. This is stuff you can do kind of for free on the side. And if you design it right, it's pretty easily done. Now, before we do that, I want to make a distinction between two very different kinds of prototype. Prototype is a big word and they're all valid versions. But very often what we mean by prototyping is what I would call an engineering prototype. And an engineering prototype asks the question, does this thing work? In other words, you know, I'm building a new jet engine and we think this looks really great and we're not sure if it's ready to release over to Boeing and, and put it on planes with people in it. So before we do that, we've got prototype number 12 here and we're going to, you know, put it in a concrete box and we're going to run it at three times normal speed and throw a goose through it and see what happens. You know, and if, and if it succeeds, then that prototype succeeded. You know, that was a, we learned something that was positive and we can go forward. And if it failed, oh, we got to go back to the drawing board. Now, that's a totally appropriate thing to do before you go kill people on airplanes. But that prototype started with, we think we have the answer. We think this thing works. Let's make sure that that's true. So I'm testing the validation of my answer. That's not a design prototype. A design prototype is not asking the question, are we right or are we done? It's asking the question, hey, what can I learn about this? So our prototypes ask interesting questions like, how do they do that? What does it really involve? Who, what's going on here? You know, what is needed? And prototypes job being to learn something, not to prove something, you can't fail. This is where the concept of failure immunity comes in that when I know all I'm trying to do with my prototype is learn something and move a little bit forward, the only way I could fail is learn nothing. Even if I try this thing out and everybody hates it, oh, great, that's a really good learning. So that was a successful prototype. I'm failure immune. Now, eventually, I got to build a thing that actually works. So the prototyping process is very tolerant. So how do you prototype work stuff? I'll borrow one of the examples in the book. There's a, a woman who works in a teleservice center. She's you know, in one of the 1-800-DIAL-something-or-other. You know, and she spends most of her time talking to customers on the phone. Now, she's a team lead, you know, so she oversees a team of six or eight people. And, you know, she would like to have a little more interaction with people in her job. How does she find out whether or not that's possible? Well, it turns out she's really good at interviewing. You know, and they hire new people and people go through the interview process and she's on the interview schedule. People really love being interviewed by her. And uh, very often, even if people don't end up on her team, she's not the team leader of that new hire, 
you know, someone who's going to come back and seek her out, you know, for help or assistance because she seemed so available. And she goes, you know, I really like doing that. I wonder if I could do more of that. And, well, I could make a proposal and put it to my boss and ask her time off. Or, you know, what I could do is I could prototype that by when somebody asks, hey, do you have a little time? I might just say, sure. Do you want to come in tomorrow a half hour before work and we can have a coffee? I mean, you don't need permission for, and maybe I could do that three times. Okay, that's 90 minutes of my life. That's, you know, just as long as you and I are talking this afternoon. And hey, how did that work? You know, and then I do that with somebody else. So in life design, the two primary forms of a, a prototype are conversations and trying stuff. So the, I could actually have a couple of half-hour conversations before work. That's trying stuff. Very low bar to entry, very easily done, no permission needed. Hey, Harriet, tell me how it's working for you. That's a conversation where I'm actually, it's actually called surrogation versus analysis. The technical research in the psychological field would say, it turns out, you know, you can do great decision-making, should I try to change my job, by doing surrogation, find out how it worked for them, rather than analysis. Let me see if I can't come up with something my boss will buy. So go talk to a bunch of Harriets and see what happened for them. So those are the two things we recommend people do. Yeah, I think an extension of that is something you suggest in the book, which is radical collaboration, which is another strategy to feel unstuck in your position and to also extend yourself. And I'm just wondering, what types of collaborations would you suggest as you connect with others to gain insight and help? Well, it turns out, yeah, so radical collaboration was one of the six key mindsets of a designer that we talk about. First of all, the key thing is, you know, when you say the word collaboration, most people, quite correctly, think, oh, I'm now working together with somebody on a joint task force or some kind of a team. We're, we're, we're working together. We're getting something done. And that's normally where you want to end up. But where you start in radical collaboration from design is back at that empathy step. And so the first thing you radically collaborate on is just listening. Huh, what's it like? I wonder how everybody else does this. Not, will you go do something with me? Let's go create an outcome. Let's go get a project started. Be like, hey, Michael, you know, you've been doing this podcast thing for a while. So how's that working for you? Let's go really understand Michael's point of view. You do this long form thing, you know, long form's kind of dying off. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, that's what they tell me. It's all about, you know, the six second video. You're doing the 90 minute interview. <laughs> and so you go off and you do this empathy step. Now, if I listen, because what we say is if you radically collaborate by listening to every single point of view in the room. You now deeply understand the thing you're curious about or the problem you're trying to solve. You're going to end up with the opportunity to do a reframe. You're going to think of a different idea because you've now heard things you didn't know you didn't know. So when you now go back to some of those people and maybe you do want to enlist them as your collaborators on something you're going to actually do, Two things are true that normally aren't at that moment. Number one, that person already knows you and has been listened to by you. You've already given them the experience of being respected enough that their time and their voice is worth hearing, whether or not there's an outcome. So they've already been valued by you, which means the chance of them being open to you just went way up. And because you've listened broadly and deeply, the thing you're about to propose that they could collaborate with you on is probably grounded in reality, makes sense looks like you were paying attention and probably has a better chance of succeeding than the person who just said, here's what we need to do, because they thought it up themselves in the middle of the night. So if you begin by listening radically, your chances of collaborating more broadly go way up. And that collaboration would be, specifically, how can we together go reach the next step of this wayfinding process of designing something that's going to work? 
listening radically is is put wonderfully. And I, I think we have to remind ourselves that we may be in a position where we could be a spectator, but often we need to nudge such conversations, dialogues, or anything otherwise in our life. And it does require us to extend our comfort zones at times and ask that question to whoever it may be. And that's incredible advice. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me double down on that for a minute and, and, and say two very conflicting things on the thing about radical collaboration and asking for help. A woman, a very successful woman, who was actually one of the starting forwards on the national championship women's basketball team many years ago at Stanford, who then went into business consulting. I think she was working with either McKinsey or actually Deloitte & Touche. Uh, she was being fabulously successful and then found herself in that surprisingly common place of, wow, this is working really great and I hate it. <laughs> she got it. She was on a, on, on a client call. Um, years ago in, I believe, Sacramento, California, in, in a nice hotel, and at three in the morning, wakes up and suddenly realizes, oh my God, what have I done? And she runs into the bathroom, flips on the light, looks at herself in the mirror, and screams at the top of her lungs, how did you get us into this situation? What do we do now? <laughs> what do we do now? Like, I'm screwed, you know, being so successful and making too much money in this thing I can't stand. And she started trying to redesign her life. And along the way, she asked a lot of people what they do, and what, she didn't even know what she liked, you know. So she had a lot of work to do. And along the way, somebody gave her a piece of advice. And the piece of advice was what she thought sounded a little too cute, you know, not the kind of thing a smart person like her would pay attention to, sort of bumper stickerish. She said, you've got to ask 100% of the people for 100% of what you want 100% of the time. And if you do that, you're going to be surprised. You know, or as my wife used to say, I really do depend on the kindness of strangers. Now, first of all, so thing one is, and she tried that, as kind of stupid as it sounds. So somebody said to her, you know, to some business meeting, well, well, what are you up to? She goes, well, actually, I have no idea. And they go, what? <laughs> you know, they go, I have no idea. You know, I'm changing careers, but I don't know what to. And, and here's what I'm really looking for. Do you think you could help me? And she said, when you put it that way, it was amazing how many people said, well, you know, maybe I can, or I can't, but. A friend of mine could, you should call John. And she said she was amazed at how helpful people were. So thing one on this collaboration thing is you will be surprised if you are respectful and candid, who's willing to reach out and help you. Now, on the flip side, the exact opposite advice is, look, most people's favorite thing is themselves and what they're doing. And when you're asking somebody for something, very often, you know, it's, well, hey, incredibly busy person, you know, I have no idea who you are or what you're doing or anything about your life, and, but I've got a problem over here I think you could solve for me. How about you just solve my problem for me? And that's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? So if I'm, if I'm going to ask smart, whenever possible, try to understand what's in it for them. And if you can find a way to ask for help that makes evident to them what might be interesting to them or what have you, uh, might be a benefit to them, you want to bring that to the front. Now, and if you can't think of anything there, then you just be brutally honest and say, you know, I'm not, I don't know what's in it for you, but this would be really helpful. If you can't, I certainly understand. But, you know, could you help me do this? And sometimes people are very willing to help just because the experience of being helpful is so gratifying. It's a fundamental human desire to be helpful to one another. And you'd be surprised how much action you can get. So play it smart. Ask people to do things that they want to do for their own sake. And if not, be willing to receive help. You might be surprised. As you're talking about this, I, I realize we have really dug into 
main nuances of your philosophy in the book without identifying very clearly one of the biggest themes, which is reframing and the importance of that. And I also think of it as framing and reframing. Let's be honest, all of us have often succumbed to many dysfunctional beliefs, and they steer not only our frame of mind, but a lot of our behaviors. And how do we get from this point of overwhelm, but basically buying into this point of reframing and the questioning of what we know? Well, sure. And and they're really two complementary but distinct things in your question, like what's going on with dysfunctional beliefs and how do we out them and free ourselves from them? And then once we're freed from them, how can we reframe with a new point of view? So we take on dysfunctional beliefs first. Most dysfunctional beliefs don't come with a big sticker on them like, warning, warning, I'm actually not true. So what you'll notice is, again, it's really about when you're stuck. So if you're feeling stuck on something, then you might want to interrogate the question or the statement that defines why you're stuck. Well, you know, I know we're supposed to, you're supposed to follow your passion, and I don't really have one, so I guess I'm stuck. And you're stuck because the rule is follow your passion. One of the ways to get unstuck is like, well, am I, do I really deserve to be here? And what you do, the step you take to identify whether or not something that is causing you to be stuck is in fact dysfunctional and therefore does not deserve the power to make you stuck is to interrogate its belief system. Because all key statements and particularly key questions, particularly those questions that either you've decided to authorize to either judge your life or to organize and plan your life, like follow your passion, that's the right thing to do. Okay, that now, what is your passion, is a question that says, I deserve the power of organizing your future. Great. So that question, what does that question believe? All those statements that's all about following your passion or what is your passion, either one of those forms, believes something. What is it believes? You have to go up a level. Like, what is the what is the unspoken underlying belief system of this life organizing, life judging question? Well, apparently, then we believe everybody has a passion. So it believes everybody has a passion. It believes that passion is identifiable, probably early in life, whether or not you've had any experience in doing anything with it. It believes that if you identify that passion, the world is going to let you do something with that passion. It believes that once you start doing something, you can make a living at that passion. And eh, all four of those are untrue. <laughs> not one of those is true. Um, you know, eight out of 10 people answer the passion question, gosh, I don't know, haven't found one yet, or I've got a bunch, which one did you want to hear next? Now, those are totally natural human positions. So we're taking eight out of 10 people and calling them remedial humans when what they really are is this thing called normal, you know? <laughs> and no, there are a lot of passions you can't make a living at and a lot of passions that aren't even happening now. I graduated with Stanford. I was a certified advanced energy technology person with a degree paid for by Chevron Research, you know, highly authorizing organization. And nobody said, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to do that. It doesn't even exist. <laughs> you know, I had a thoroughly articulated passion, highly trained, authorized, certificated passion. Here's a quarter, call somebody who cares. Didn't matter. So watch out for this stuff. So the way you out a dysfunctional belief is you get to unearth its presuppositions, its belief systems, and then you simply ask the question, are they true? Or are they true for me? And if they're not, you can free yourself from that dysfunction. Oh, I don't have to have a passion up front to be a successful person. Great. 
Now what else can I do? Oh, what is interesting enough that I might want to learn more about? That's a very different question than I'm already passionate. Turns out most people gain a passion after developing competency in something, not at the start. It's usually the outcome of the well-lived life, not the beginning of the well-lived life. So that's only one example. So in the dysfunctional belief area, take the thing that's got you stuck. What is the, the question or the statement that is defining the block in front of you? Ask that question or statement, what does it believe? And then make sure those belief systems work for you. And if they don't, you dethrone that statement and you pivot. And now we start doing a reframe. How can I state this differently in a way that is true that has more freedom in it? The whole point of a reframe is to have things be more real and be more free. You make a distinction between reframing and renaming your work experiences. What's the difference? You know, this kind of fits in the category, gee, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, that kind of stuff. What we're getting at in renaming versus reframing is it's not just optical. A couple of years ago, 2016, I was invited to go work for a think tank in New York in the spring, which looked really interesting. And uh, that was back before we were just getting, th things were really starting to grow for us at Stanford. And I, I shared this with Bill and he goes, oh God, it's actually a theological think tank. He goes, that's totally your thing. You should go do that. And I said, well, God, I mean, I, I, there's no way we can afford for me to do that. We can't possibly, you know, carry the teaching load you know, if I'm gone. And he said, no, no, no. We, you know, we're getting older. We got to move on. We got to empower the team. We got to do succession planning. This is perfect. You should go because it's going to force the younger members on the team, our fellows, into the front of the room. We're going to step up by necessity. And uh, it's exactly the right thing to do. And so off I went. And I came back and I said, hey, I'm back. I can't wait to talk about what my classes I'm going to be doing for the fall. And then Bill goes, no, no, no. You're not teaching anymore. And I went, what? <laughs> I founded this thing. You can't kick me out of my own classroom. And he goes, no, no, no. The, you, your being gone worked beautifully. The fellows really stepped up. And if you come back in, they're all going to, oh, well, Dave is back. You know, they're all going to go back in the back room again. Um, no way. He said, now, from now on, you can't teach students here. You can only teach teachers. And you can do the experience. So I became the outside guy. Um, so I have not taught an undergrad class since 2016. Initially, I was really angry. I was really mad. And so here's this big change. What do I do with it? Now, if I had simply renamed my new job, where I'm no longer teaching undergraduate, oh, I'm the off-campus guy. You know, I'm just the guy that's not allowed on the campus much anymore. You know, I got, I, I'm the evicted guy. And that renaming, you know, is accurate but it doesn't address the underlying problem. There's no acceptance of this. You know, it really defines what I'm not, not what I am. Uh, and that renaming is not very helpful. Now, if I reframe it, kind of go, okay, what's really going on here? Okay, so I'm, I'm being invited to teach teachers, not teach students. So that's fundamentally changing my value proposition. I'm really about expansion. I'm the outside guy. I'm really the design your life academic ambassador. Now, that's a renaming, but it's a renaming with a different mindset. In order for reframing to work, which usually involves changing the language, a renaming, there has to be a change of point of view. I now really care about all these other educators and these other organizational people that I'm talking to. I spent more time on campuses with students who didn't go to Stanford in 2017 and 18 than I did at Stanford. I spent more time on campuses that didn't start with an S than I did at Stanford. And then that was great rather than, wow, I've been evicted. So the mindset has to do with the issue. So when you just rename something, but don't change your mind, you're just painting over it. When you reframe it, you change your mind, your mindset, and your point of view, 
And then the language just reflects that. Now, let's just say that you're in a situation where reframing doesn't change the shape or your perspective of the position, and you truly believe now with your new awareness and acceptance that's not the right fit. What do you suggest is the best exit strategy from that point? Yeah, let's say, so we we talk about don't resign, redesign. So in the, the new workbook, we talk about before you jump ship, and this is very relevant for a lot of people right now, because if 20 million people have already quit, there are another 10 million thinking about it. Like, should I be the next one or do I want to capitalize on the fact that the company is now pretty interested in retaining who's still here? So we have, you know, four redesign strategies, the first of which is reframe and reenlist. The second is remodel. The third is relocate. And the fourth is reinvent. First one is, again, just reframe and reenlist. So if the job suddenly got worse, new owners came in, the whole place, the culture went south. It feels horrible. I hate it, but I can't afford to quit right now. So I'm going to stay for a while. I need to tell myself a new story. That's okay. I do that as best I can. I come up with the most viable, true, reframed story that makes this job as tolerable as I can make it, and it's still not working for me. First of all, when you said, you know, I've done it, but I have no new perspective. Well, okay, then if you have no new perspective, you didn't reframe. But what you might try is, I've tried a new perspective. Look, yes, I'm just doing it for the money, but I need the money. You know, so I'm going to be really efficient. I'm going to spend no more extra hours at work. You know, I'm going to be it's, it's gone from being a career to just being a job, but I can put up with that for a year or 18 months or until the pandemic is over. A lot of people have done that. And let's say I've tried that reframe, but what's actually occurring is it's really not working for me. It's better than it was, but it still feels sufficiently soul-crushing that I really do want to quit, which is why, again, there's a whole chapter on quitting, how to quit generatively, because we're all going to quit. You know, you're all going to have a couple of careers and a whole bunch of jobs. So quitting is in is part of the deal. The best exit strategy, if I'm going to leave a position, is to leave them happy and to leave them hungry. I mean, the, the comedian will always say you want to get off the stage before it's too late. You want to leave them hungry for more. And the way you do that is there a way to generatively quit where your focus is on not first and foremost, how do I get the heck out of here? But how the heck do I leave this place in great shape so that the person who's going to replace me has a great start? Once you've quit and moved on, you're out of there. You're gone. So don't worry about that. But what you can do is you can leave behind a fabulous story by setting up the people you've left behind to win in your absence. There's an interesting spin in this book with your focus on storytelling in particular. And there's an intention to help readers rewrite their story and become better storytellers. What do you think is the foundation of great storytelling? Well, you know, again, there are, there are these classic storylines, right? You know, there's the hero's journey, there's the great adventure, there's loved, lost, and found again. So there's certain archetypal stories we tell over and over again. It's part of the human experience. We now know neurophysiologically that your brain is organized around stories. We are story engines. You know, you're not you know, just biological feeding machines. You're not just work accomplishment robots. You're really a story-making machine, you know, which is why the coherence of your story. We talk about coherence, who I am and what I believe and what I'm doing are in alignment. The story of my life is making sense to me. You know, that's really who we are as human beings. So the importance of the story is, first of all, it's got to be true. And you have to understand where you are in the midst of the journey that you're on. I work primarily with older people at Stanford now. I teach in the DCI program, the Distinguished Career Institute program. I don't teach undergrads anymore. I teach the grownups. There's a, a gap year for grownups program, people running mid-40s to their 80s. 
you know, most of them are in their late 50s to mid 60s, you know, people kind of thinking about retirement or encore careers and reinventing themselves. And they're spending a lot of time writing and storytelling, like what's the story? So the foundation of a great story is, first of all, reality, and then locating it in what's the big journey that you're telling and what are we moving from and to? And sometimes you've got to pivot that story in order to make things work well for you. I'll give you an example. So back in the day when I was trying to be an advanced energy technologist and solve the energy crisis, a very worthwhile thing to do. And trust me, this was really frustrating to let go of because it was a real problem. It was global. We had way back in the 70s, the technologies to address the problem. We knew how to address the problem. The stuff we're doing today has been around for 45 years. So I was right all day long. I just was unsuccessful because people didn't care. So what do you pivot to? Well, then suddenly, and I promised myself, well, I'm not just going to give up and go work for a computer company because I live in Silicon Valley, just happened to be in Northern California, but I was a mechanical engineer, not an electrical engineer. And I liked things, not computers. I liked things with that flew or went to space or spun 100,000 RPM like a gas turbine, not just lie there on the desk and get warm and blink. You know, that's not that interesting. So I was pretty committed to not being in the computer industry. And then Apple Computer called. And I'll skip over the long and crazy process of getting to know each other. I mean, you know, Steve finally said, give this thing a try. And I thought, God, do I really want to do this? Do I want to, you know, give up what I really like and go work on this crazy thing I don't think I even really like at all? What's the story? And then I thought, oh, if I zoom back, what's going on here, Dave, is you were trying to change the world by bringing better solutions to our energy needs by not using so much petroleum. And the world's just not willing to go there. That bus is stuck and not leaving the station. This, you know, personal computer technology, these guys all feel like they're renegades. They're, there's a pirate flag <laughs> flying over one of the buildings, <laughs> you know, where we said, we're going to change the fundamental relationship between information technology and individual persons with this thing called a, quote, personal computer. This is another kind of a revolution. Oh, and this one is actually happening. Oddly enough, this bus, which is about to take off and go a really interesting place, that technologically you don't think is all that cool, but psychosocially, economically, you think is fascinating. Like, look, technology you like that should change the world is going nowhere. You can go sit on a bus that's parked that you like. You like that bus, but it's parked. Or you can get on this bus you kind of don't like that's about to take off and go somewhere really interesting with a bunch of really smart people. Which one do you want to get on? So I said, you know what? I'd rather change the world in a real way, even if it's not my favorite technology, than not change the world and watch nothing happen. I'm changing my bus. I'm getting off this bus. I'm going to get on these guys' bus. And I wasn't, and still not, that massively in love with technology, but I did practice latent wonderfulness and found particularly laser printing to be really interesting. I had no idea how interesting it was. Like, what's interesting about this? Oh my God, it's actually incredibly interesting. More on that later if you want. But it, there was a huge change in the story. And the story had to be about changing the world in a different way. And that completely empowered the next five years of my life. Yeah, it just reminds me of the myth that we need to create a structure or a design to steer the remainder of our lives and stick to it. And I know for myself, if I would have followed the very specific path that I started on about 20 years ago, not only would I have missed out on so many experiences uh, that have hopefully made me the best person I am today, but I would have missed out on so many incredible relationships in my life, including the one with my wife. 
And I certainly see some of the same things in your own life and the importance of reframing some of these opportunities and just thinking a little differently about the opportunity that's presented to you. I remember making that decision in my 30s, and it was a very, very hard decision to make. I am not trivializing what's involved when you're thinking about rewriting your story. I'm rewriting my story right now. You know, I'm, I had no plans to be single I'm, you know, at this point. I'm 68. You know, I've got nine, or depending on how you count, 11 grandchildren. And like, now what? Who ordered this? You know, well, are you just going to sit around and kind of go, damn it, Claudia's gone. Okay, that's true. Now what, fella? Are you just, you know, getting by? Or are you going to say, okay, let's go sign up for a whole new learning experience? It is tough. But what are the choices? And, and the generative choice is really the one that brings more aliveness. I think the thing about, about the story, right, is these stories are about engaging your aliveness and moving down the road of your becoming. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers, you know, would argue anthropologically that the most succinct definition of the human person, you know, and I'm a human-centered designer, a human person is a becoming not primarily a, you know, a utilized resource. It's not primarily an accomplishment engine. A human being is a becoming. How are you becoming? And how is your aliveness? We keep saying each of us contain more aliveness than one lifetime permits you to live out. There's lots of you in there. There's more than one of you in there, Michael. And since that's true, there's not one right you. There are lots of good yous, and only a few of them are we even going to have time to get to meet. So which one did you want to let out next? So that story piece is about some combination or some trade-off between how am I engaging my aliveness, am I moving into my ongoing journey of becoming? That's what the story is all about. You mentioned relentless redesign in the book, and certainly something that applies to the conversation we've been having. And I wonder, as much as I always do a check-in every year and think about how I might redesign for the benefit of myself, the people around me, to live my best life in the moment, at what point is there too much redesign? Well, yes, that's a really good question. I'm glad you brought it up. The, the very first thing in one of the first chapters of the new book, we talk about the importance of good enough. Good enough for now. I know it's not good enough, but is it good enough for now? Could we make a small redesign, a, a, a slight change that makes it good enough for a while? And then we'll do it again, and then we'll do it again. You know, life's never good enough, except that it is. So there's that paradox. And we're navigating that paradox of good enough isn't, except good enough is. Because good enough is all it's ever going to be, right? When is it time to change? And when is it time to say, no, this is fine? First of all, you know, life is, life is lived, I call it the quantum theory of life. You know, we're not in constant evolving change. You know, we make a move and then we need to digest it for a while. We need to, to live there a while. We need to live it a most of my children are in that incredibly overwhelmed stage of life when they've got a bunch of small kids and they're working on their career and they're working on their houses. I mean, they're just exhausted at the end of every incredibly long day. You know, and they're not trying to reinvent themselves. They're just trying to get the thing done. Well, okay, that's a season of life. And that's a, it's a lovely season of life. I remember it vividly. Uh, it's fun to watch them go through it. But you're not having deep existential questions every night about, is this the way I'm supposed to be living? You know, I've just got to get the three-year-old to school on time. So it's okay to just be walking it out for a period of time. My friend Bill, my partner, you know, has a bunch of quotes he likes, and he's, he's got a system that allows them to populate uh, on the footer of his emails. And the one that I see very often I'm really fond of is, 
change's inevitable growth is optional. The changes that come your way, you need to field, you know, but not every single change requires a redesign. So I think there is a, a qualitative decision to make about do I need to make it better or not. So our counsel, be relentless redesigners. What do we mean by that? Well, we don't literally mean uh, uh, exactly not meaning you should never be satisfied. It's never good enough. Be relentless to make it better. And that's the only thing you can do. We're not saying that at all. We're saying absolutely there are times when it's good enough. But by relentless redesign, what we mean is, hey, give yourself the chance to be on the lookout for, to be opportunistic toward, you know, small moves, living into prototyping, staying curious. I can relentlessly live like a designer. I can relentlessly think things might be better. I don't have to do that today, but I could lean into it. I could try a prototype. I could have a conversation. I could be more aware. I could look around a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. What are you guys doing over there? That's the relentless redesign mindset. And particularly during times like a pandemic, when people are feeling powerless, which is really where that recommendation was made. I mean, during a disruption, that's a good time to do small, relentless little redesigns. Why? Because number one, it reminds you that you're a thinking person. It shows you you still have choice. It enacts that you're a person with agency. And while lots of things can't move, when you make a little change, your attention is drawn to that and you get so much more out of it. Just rearrange the furniture a little bit and you'll notice that every single day for a couple of weeks and you get a lot of juice out of it. So what we're saying in Relentless Redesign is give yourself a chance to be a person experiencing your agency and your aliveness. What we're not saying is, and be unsatisfied all the time. Good enough is, go ahead and make decisions about when tomorrow's just another day or tomorrow's the day I want to do it different. Well, Dave, I think we have come full circle here and we absolutely have only skimmed the surface on this topic. And I was hoping I could just finish off with a couple additional questions. I appreciate all the time you've given today to make sure that this is longer than a TikTok video. It's definitely longer than a TikTok video. <laughs> I feel bad for anyone listening that's under the age of 30. Uh, but a couple of questions I have. One in particular. If you could implant one thought in the minds of all humans, what would it be? It really is in almost all the important questions about your life and your career. There is no right answer. It's mostly up to you and we're making it up as we go. And probably secondly, the thing we just covered, which is, you know, Good enough is. Learn how to get to the place where you can actually say, good enough is. It's good enough for today, and today is the only place I get to live. Sure, it could be better tomorrow, but today is absolutely good enough. Those are the two things. I think that is wonderful advice. And my last question, typically I ask for a lesson for my four-year-old son, but today, because it is my birthday, I am going to selfishly ask for one lesson that you would like to share with me? Well, there's a friend of mine named Teague. Teague is a really interesting guy. We had him come talk to class one day, and we asked him the question, well, hey, Teague, when you were a kid, and people asked you the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? And Teague says, I always thought that was the strangest question. I said, well, what's your answer? And he said, when people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would just say, Teague. I want, I want to be Teague. 
And then we just went, oh my God, you know, and he's a kid, you know. So, you know, he didn't have a particular form of something he wanted to be. He just wanted to keep being more and more himself. So if I had one bit of counsel to leave with you, Michael, I would say, as you become more proficient in constantly being aware of what you could collaborate on and what you can be curious about and how did it go today and, you know, whether we did the Good Work Journal, or the, you know, all the, all the things that, that analyze, you know, how is it going from a design point of view, learn how to recognize at the end of the day or the end of an experience, not just did I have a good time or was that fun or did I enjoy that or did people like it or could I be successful with that? Those are all really worthwhile questions. But what you want to get really good at, and here's the counsel, is can you answer the question, did that make me more Michael? Was I more Michael then? Am I becoming more Michael? That's what you really want to get after. Those other things are good. More success, more money, more impact. They're all important stuff. But at the end of the day, what you really want to be is you want to be more Michael. I love it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the words of wisdom. And today has been an absolute joy. Of course, I want people to learn even more about you and everything you're doing. Where can they find you? Well, our website you know, has all kinds of resources available on it, both downloadable worksheets and videos and all kinds of stuff. And it's really simple. It's the title of the first book with a dot in it. So go to designingyour.life, and that's the home site. That's where almost all the resources can be found. If you're not a reading kind of person, if books aren't your thing, you know, and we're readily available, all the books are on Amazon. There's also a video training course. People say, can I take the class? Can I take the class? Well, actually, now the answer is yes, you can. You can take it online. There's a, a version of our intense workshop at a place called Creative Live. So you go to creativelive, no punctuation, .com, and type in Designing Your Life. In fact, we're on the homepage, um, one of the more popular courses. And there's a 22-module Bill and Dave teaching together, actually, with an interactive small group of, I think it's 18 people in small groups of six. So you could literally sort of jump in and experience the live interactive workshop format of learning this stuff, if that's your style. I'm not here to sell videos, but, and it used to be the most expensive course they had, like three, 400 bucks. They've now changed their model. It's only, you know, $59 and half the time it's on sale for 29. Uh, so it's a pretty good deal. So we got the video training course, we got the home website, we got the books. And if you're curious about the academic stuff, there's a lifedesignlab.stanford.edu. Just Google Life Design Lab at Stanford, and you'll find the home website of that. So the academic stuff is differently located than, you know, the stuff for everybody else. Plenty of resources to indulge in, and I will include all of the websites and resources in the show notes. I just want to wish you and Bill the most success with this incredible book and relentless redesign journey. Thank you. Certainly be well. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be with you, Michael. If you find this podcast interesting, there are many ways you can support it. You can review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen on. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can read the show notes on michaelmoodyfitness.com. Thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it worthwhile.